In the beginning, there was only the holy darkness, the Ain Sof, the source of all life. And then, in the course of history, at a moment in time, this world, the world of a thousand thousand things, emerged from the heart of the holy darkness as a great ray of light. But then, as the great light of goodness and beauty collected itself in ultimate love in these vessels, the vessels containing the light of the world, the wholeness of the world, broke. And the wholeness of the world, that great light, was scattered into a thousand thousand fragments of light, and they fell into all events and all people, where they remain hidden until this very day. We are here because we are born with the capacity to find the hidden light in all events and all people, to lift it up and make it visible once again, and thereby to restore the innate wholeness of all things. We are here to restore the holy light of the world as it was in the beginning. All right. Lamentations for the world. How to suffer well from an ancient book of poems. I'm here in the barn with Amy and we are going to cap off our very long, arduous conversation uh, over the past few weeks. And to be honest, like this is where the whole thing comes together. Everything we've been doing with the Odyssey, with the concept of suffering, with the theoretical and the practical and the existential, it all culminates into this last part. And I really think that this isn't just this part. This is not just about suffering. This is about being human. This is about how our disposition in the world should enact itself like that light uh, that that comes in all events and all things and it's hidden. And how do we bring that out? But the question that we're forced with, because last week we kind of nail these two psychological practices, voice and scene, that throughout human history, like these have been talked about. And we have a psychology today that affirms these things, but we can go back throughout the ages and we can see that pe- people have known this to be true. So we have better language for how to deal with crisis and trauma and tragedy and wounds now. But what we see in Lamentations is, They were articulating it in a narrative, poetic way that's still just as applicable. However, our issue is, is that practical help at the expense of good theology? Because God appears cruel and abusive. If you just read Lamentations on the front, it, it ain't looking pretty. And yet, if we can uh, enter into the book... You know, we, we have to we have to be able to wrestle with either those things are true or something else is going on. Now, this is why we went through this whole process of theodicy is so that we can see that there are responses to suffering and how we perceive the world that aren't necessarily helpful. And so does Lamentations fit in those those poor perspectives or is there something else going on here? And what we can see from Lamentations, first of all, is the theodicy we looked at called fideism. So that sort of, well, you can't actually know and you just have to trust God and have faith. Well, that's not happening in Lamentations. They, they don't go that route. Instead of appeasing God, they appear to smash images of God with this honest testimony because they're not helpful. In the theodicy conversation, this was called protest theodicy. And so Lamentations does actually seem to use that but we have to wrestle with this disruptive theology. Is there still room for God in Lamentations? Because Lamentations refuses to ignore complexities. And so we, we have to look either God is silent, because the book does not have any dialogue from God, and possibly God is evil, or there's something else in God's response that, that could uh, show us this. And in the conversation of theodicy and, and lamentations, the words transcendence and imminence become very important. We're going to kind of leave the transcendent part 
um, aside right now. Okay. Because we did handle that well. So Mm -hmm. transcendence is that there is a being who makes all of this possible. We hand if you if you want more depth on transcendence, got to go back to listen to the other episodes. Okay. Um, But the the idea of imminence is that that divine presence is in the world that we know it that it's it's here and it's it's real and and it can be discovered okay now transcendence and imminence uh so i know you say it sounds like an oxymoron i i actually would disagree i i don't think that you can actually have transcendence without imminence so if if that divine source of reality isn't a part of things Mm-hmm. then it doesn't exist in my mind. And and the basic idea that we would have to we'd, I'd have to push to in order to arrive there is that if God is the source of being, then God has to be present within being itself. Okay. Yeah. So nothing can then be without that source of being mm-hmm. uh being the thing that compels it to be. Okay. So I do think that transcendence and imminence are are really important to each other. I also think that the biblical narrative from Torah on is that's what it's about. And I think Lamentations is also about that. Okay. And so in order to understand how we ha- the question today is how do we find God in Lamentations? Yeah. Well, then we have to look for imminence. Okay. So we have to start with how is God imminent within the the Jewish tradition. Um, and that story that we read, the, the birthday of the universe, uh, that's, that's what it's about. Okay. Transcendence and imminent. So, um, I'll leave that one to you all. If, if you feel like, no, we need to, we need to actually cover that more. And that was over your head. I'm willing to, uh, because I do think that those ideas are, are so important to, um, um, to, to good theology. But I, I want to move into um, how does how does imminence work? Okay, so again, our task right now is we have to find God in Lamentations. Right. Well, God didn't, didn't speak. Right. God's getting yelled at a lot, so it looks like God's kind of just been pushed to the side. My hypothesis, that's not really a hypothesis because I've already determined this is what I think, <laughs> is that God is actually there the whole time. Right. So we need to figure out how. So I want to start in Exodus. Okay. All right. So Exodus chapter two, mm-hmm. one of your favorite mm-hmm. chapters. Uh, so how do you see, and if this is throwing you on the spot, uh, that that's fine. Try how, me. how do you see imminence? Okay. How is God present within, within everyday reality in Exodus chapter two? Okay, well, Exodus chapter 2 is where uh, Moses is born. Um, I believe at the beginning, I'm not sure if that was already in chapter 2 or chapter 1, but the, um, the Pharaoh had decreed that all Hebrew babies would be killed. The male babies would be thrown into the river and, just, and, and drown. And Moses was born, and his mother saw that he was beautiful, so she puts him into the basket, mm-hmm. um, and, and the Pharaoh's daughter finds him. Um, and it seems at that point, with the with the Pharaoh destroying the Hebrew people by this genocide, that God is no longer interested in what happens to the Israelites. They have been enslaved, they are suffering, they have cried out, and apparently God isn't answering because they are being destroyed. And yet mm-hmm. we see this story happen where there seems to be this hopeful thing. Um, one of my favorite parts about that is the... Uh, the midwives, the Hebrew midwives, would, in fact, there were two of them. Pua, Shipra and Pua, I think, are their names. Okay. Anyway, their names, not so much as that, is that what they did is they would claim when the Pharaoh said, how is it that these Hebrew children keep being born and not being killed? And they said, oh, well, by the time we get there, the Hebrew babies are already born and we can't kill them. So when they are taking agency to help to save their people, one could almost say if it were not for these midwives, the Hebrew people may have indeed been yep. destroyed through genocide. So through the hands of these women who would have been probably, well, they were slaves for one thing and, and lower caste slaves, mm-hmm. you know, that the, the entire nation of Israel at that point 
was saved. Um, and so there, yeah, there's a sort of subversive resistance yeah. amongst the midwives. Uh, what is interesting about Exodus chapter two, that at least that that opening section, is that all of the characters outside of Moses being born, but we don't get any action from Moses. So mm-hmm. all of the characters who are active um, are all women. So the daughter of Pharaoh is, is in mm-hmm. there as well. Um, yeah, his mother, his sister. But within the, the context of Exodus, so Exodus begins with um, Israel is in Egypt mm-hmm. and they're growing. Like the, they, they have multiplied, which was one of the promises that they were supposed to have. Okay. Is that they would grow into this nation. Well, mm-hmm. they have. Mm-hmm. The other promise, though, was that they were going to have their own land. Oh, yeah. And the next thing we find out in Exodus is they don't have that. In fact, they're slaves. All right. So this is the opening scene of Exodus. Mm-hmm. And it just gets... Uh, uh, absolutely crushed from there. And we find out that Pharaoh, this person in power, has subjugated them and that it's getting worse and it's getting worse. And what's fascinating about Exodus as a whole is a lot of the movement in the story is based on dialogue. You get a lot of dialogue in Exodus. Mm -hmm. Exodus chapter one, you barely get any dialogue. You get a lot of dialogue from Pharaoh basically saying, I'm in power. Mm Mm-hmm. You don't get any dialogue from God. Now, as Exodus goes, you get tons of it. Right, already by chapter three or four. Yep. And then God is speaking. Mount Sinai. Mm -hmm. I mean, this whole thing is built on God being present and and God speaking and moving the story forward. That doesn't happen here. Especially you get to Exodus chapter two. You don't hear from God. Sounds a little bit like Lamentations. Yeah. God in the promises of Israel not happening. And in fact, they're slaves. God seems to be absent. Right. Um, The problem in Exodus chapter two is that you get all of these images of new creation. Right. So the thing that Moses is put into in the river, it's actually the word ark. Right. So an ark goes on a body of water. When's the last time that happened? Genesis 6 through Genesis 9, and it led to a new creation. Um, You get some of this language that seems to be referencing Genesis 1 and Genesis 2. Um, And then you get this story unfolding where Moses is born and he survives. The midwives have done this. Mm -hmm. It looks, according to all the details of the story, it's new creation. This thing's happening. Action is unfolding. And yet God's silent. And so we get to, you go through Israel's desolation, mm-hmm. yet it looks like the active work of God is happening, yet there's no dialogue, there's no mention of God. All you have is the voice of the narrator telling us that this is what is happening and the midwives doing it. Okay. So in Exodus chapter 2, is God present or not? That's the question you have to ask. Mm -hmm. Now, as Exodus goes, you find out, well, absolutely. God was present. But how was God present? Mm -hmm. Through midwives. Right. It was actually the midwives having this uh, divine presence amongst them that made the work of God unfold that eventually leads to the liberation. And, you know, as you said, the very existence of Israel's future. So what we learn from Exodus 2 is that there's a divine disguise. Okay. Mm-hmm. And God often shows up in unexpected disguised forms. Now, is that theologically correct, right? Uh, is, is, there any, is there anything that we can look at to go, yeah, no, we know that's actually the case because we've been told this is how God works anyways. So... We have to figure out, is there a precedent set? for? And, and okay. it seems as if there is. All right. So yes. what would you say is the precedent? Um, well, God appearing in unexpected people, in an unexpected events, uh, midwives, mm-hmm. of course, to start with. But, but Israel's already told us, according to their tradition, that actually, no, this is how this works. So this would be back in Genesis. Or, yeah, okay. Uh, well, in the story of, it makes me think of the story of Jacob. 
Jacob. Because go go back even further though. Even farther than that. I mean, this is this is Uh the birthday of the universe story. Yeah, yeah. Well, okay. Well, then go all the way back then to Genesis Genesis one. What are we told about humans? God puts yes, God creates humans in the image of God. Yeah. And then you have to ask the question: What exactly does that mean? Yep. So you have this really interesting. And there's a lot of details on this that I find fascinating just historically is that mm-hmm. the, the phrase, the image of God. So um, in theology, you'll often heard, hear, hear that phrase as uh, the Imago Dei. Right. Um, but there were other cultures at the time who used the phrase, the image of God. Mm-hmm. It was just uh, royalty. So kings or monarchs um, right. or priests were in the image of God. So mm-hmm. if you wanted to know what a God was like... Oh. You'd go to the temple, you'd watch the priest, and Mm -hmm. now you know what that God is like. Mm -hmm. So here you have Israel giving us their creation narrative, and they say, no, actually, everybody is. So if you want to know what the the God of Israel, the the God of all creation is like, you just have to look at anyone. And so that birthday of the universe thing is that the light that is the essence of this being is hidden in all events and in all people. That's the image of God. That's that's what they're wrestling with there. Um, so, one of the precedents we have set w- within you know the the theology, the perception of how this God works, is that God's imminence is most likely to be found in the human person. Okay. Okay. That's super Ooh. important. This is now. You mentioned Jacob. Yeah. So so from here, then you start actually seeing references. Uh, where this language just seems assumed. Mm-hmm. So Jacob's interacting with Esau, and we looked at the story of Jacob, um, you know, a couple months ago when we talked about, uh, I think, conflict. Mm-hmm. Um, right. And you actually see Jacob say to Esau, seeing you is like seeing the face of God. Right. Now, does Jacob have any uh, authority to say that? Well, yeah, because the chapter before, he apparently came into con like physical contact with the presence of God. Mm-hmm. But even within that story, we're not sure what that presence was from. Was right. it, was it a, another human? Was, was it some sort of angelic being? Was it Jacob himself or was it like the ultimate divine presence? Okay. It never actually says. Right. And so even in that, it's like the imminence of God is showing up strangely here. Uh-huh. But then we're told that Jacob has literally gets, gets hurt by the divine and this covenant gets renewed. And so Jacob comes in contact with the image of God. And then, uh, the next chapter he sees Esau and goes, Oh yeah. Seeing you, it's like seeing God who, who I just saw not yeah. too long ago. Down who by he the was river. just in conflict with and in conflict with his brother. Yeah. So. And, and it's like, he's finding the pattern of the story all around him. Mm-hmm. Imminence is, is now something for him to just reach out and touch. Okay. So you get that. Um, there's, if you go even further in Exodus, there's a point where God tells Moses to go to Pharaoh and speak. And this is where you get Moses like, but I'm not a very good speaker. Uh, you know, that whole thing. Mm-hmm. And we usually focus on that part. What I find really interesting about that story is God literally says to Moses, you're going to be like God to Pharaoh. So you need to go. Mm-hmm. So it's not just like, go speak on my behalf. You're going to go be me to Pharaoh and, and nobody has any like, wait, is that how this works? It's just like, Oh yeah, that's how they had. That was the understanding. It's image of God. It's, it's divine presence, Mm -hmm. imminence. That's, that's how all that seems, all that seems to work that the divine manifests through human beings. Uh, there's even an author, um, Terrence Freitheim who, is a good scholar on Exodus who says that any definition of divine sovereignty must account that God does not act alone. Mm -hmm. All right. So we've got the idea that God often shows up disguised and that's because God's imminence, God's presence uh, shows up through human beings. It's the light that had been broken and put into all of these events and all people. That's how this works. But there's also another component of God's imminence that our tradition is very particular to, and it's how that shows up. 
So on the surface, generally, we would say, yeah, at all events, all people, uh, you can just reach out and you can touch uh, the transcendent source of life right here. Mm-hmm. God's with us. Um, and obviously, incarnation, uh, Emmanuel kind of language, we're going to claim that that's one of the most real uh, examples of divine imminence, right? Right. But what we can honestly, we can leave that aside for now. That'd be the easiest argument to make. If we were right now, we've used Genesis and Exodus alone, and we've already seen this. But there is a particular way that God seems to show up in the world. And that comes also from Exodus. Do you know what I'm referring to? A particular way that God shows up in the world. Yes. Through people who are from the nations. What do you mean? Uh, well, I'm thinking of Sinai where they're all sitting there waiting for God to show up. The people are all ready and they're waiting for God to show up. And who shows up? Moses' pagan father-in-law. Jethro. <laughs> who came in and tells that, you know, Moses, you might want to do this differently. And okay. he's kind of explaining. So that yeah, occurs to my mind. And you have uh, the story of Melchizedek as well. Yes. Whom we're told that Jesus that is mm-hmm. a priest of the order of Melchizedek. Right. And so you get two really heightened stories where somebody from outside Israel is actually the most clear representative of the divine. Mm-hmm. Fascinating. Very. Um, and have, I've actually preached on that before and got yelled at because oh, really? people said, nope, you have to be a part of our internal tribe <laughs> in order to, and it's like, well, the Bible kind of portrays that differently. Um, those would be two really fascinating stories to get into, but that's not quite, that's definitely true, Okay. but that's not quite, that's uh, not what you were thinking though. Yeah. There's the, where, how, how do you see the character of God present? There's f- literally four specific ways that we're told. Uh, he's on Mount Sinai. I mean, are we talking about that where he's like the clouds and the fire and the mm-hmm. pillar and all that? That doesn't seem like that's going the connection we're making here. No, no. It's okay. in Exodus three where God relays the covenant to Moses and God gives this paragraph where God says, I am who I am and will be. It's, no, that's, that's getting there. Okay. Um, so there, these promises of liberation are given. Okay. So that their oppression is going to end. Mm-hmm. And the means by how that happens is we're told the very character of God. And I could use a phrase right now that would sum it up. Mm-hmm. And you'd be like, oh, yeah. No, I, yep. I've heard that before. We've all, we've all heard it before. But uh, the... The paragraph that we get is where God says, I have seen your cry, or I have have seen your misery, I have heard your cry, cry. Mm -hmm. I have known your suffering, and I have come down. Okay, yes. See, hear, know, come down. And that is the covenant, and it's also the Jewish bridal covenant. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and and we 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 see it in Jesus' story too later. When we do uh, um, the Holy Thursday Passover communion, Mm -hmm. and you have those four promises, um, the the four cups that are used are each based on promises. Those come in Exodus six, mm-hmm. but they're based on this. Okay. And so the the disposition of God, how God's going to interact with the world, is that uh, God sees suffering. Okay. God hears the cry. Mm-hmm. Uh, God knows the suffering, and God comes down and enters it with them. And that's just what we were talking about then. Yes. Yeah, so hopefully, you're starting to make some connections. The, the, yeah. This gets easier once you uncover uh, some of these details. Now, right after that, then then God gives, Moses says, what is your name? Okay. Which is a common question you, you have for deities. Is like, I need to know your name in order to have that authority to speak on your behalf. And then God go, proceeds to give a name, mm-hmm. um, which this is interesting because that means the divine name is not God. Right. So when we say God, we're not actually talking. That's a way that we use to help us wrap our minds around it. Mm-hmm. And that's fine. Uh, but the divine name is given in a way that it's unpronounceable and it's, it's incomprehensible. You can't actually make sense of it. And usually we hear this phrase as I am who I am mm-hmm. or I have been who I have been. And what's really interesting about the Hebrew is it can be translated in almost any tense. 
Um, and then the Tetragrammaton, which is the Yod, Hey, Vav, Hey, you see it as Y-H-W-H, or some people say Yahweh. Right. Um, which that might be the only time you'll ever hear me say that word. Because uh, I think it's disrespectful to oh, okay. uh, pronounce it. Mm-hmm. Um, in fact, the Jewish people don't. When it says that in the text and they're reading it, they'll say Adonai. And so sometimes Absolutely. here you'll hear me say Adonai. Um, but Freitheim, he has a great comment, commentary on Exodus, um, suggests that one way to translate that, that name is, just as I have been, I am, and always will be. If that's true, the divine name is actually a promise, not a name. And we get so wrapped up in in naming God when mm-hmm. really it looks like God's just actually trying to give them a promise, which is just as I have been since creation, yep. and I've been present and I've guided this story, I am right now, even though you're, the story of Israel looks desolate, and I always will be. Mm-hmm. So this becomes really important for the Jewish imagination that that's how they will know if God has, uh, if, if God is with them, that's how they'll know God when they see God in the world is seeing suffering, hearing the cry, knowing the suffering coming down. And just as God has been, God still is. And God always will be that that's the image. Um, we want to take this even further without even leaving the book of Exodus, Mm -hmm. Exodus chapter 34, we're given another name for God and, uh, it's Rucham, which means compassion. Mm -hmm. They literally call God compassion. Well, why? Well, because what does God do? He sees, he hears, and knows, comes down. Absolutely. Uh, so at this point, if we're saying this is how the divine is imminently known and found in the world, Mm -hmm. Now start thinking about lamentations and go back to the question, is God in lamentations? There's so, a huge connection here. Yeah, yeah. Let's, let's start putting some of this okay. together. Is, is God absent in lamentations or is the God of Exodus, okay, mm-hmm. all those examples we just used, actually manifesting God's presence in unexpected ways through the Imago Dei in Absolutely. fellow humans who respond with compassion. What does the narrator do in Lamentations? The narrator sees, he hears daughter Zion. He says he knows, and the the strong man, the Geber, Uh I too have seen and know your suffering. And they enter the suffering together. What is that if not the divine presence? Absolutely. So when the narrator sees the woman suffering, you, you get this image of uh, the imminence of God is showing up by the, how these characters join one another. Uh, there's something we didn't quite bring out when we just gave the overview of Lamentations is what you actually see within the poems is that all of the characters start out separate. Mm-hmm. Right, you're hearing from Daughter Zion, you're hearing from the narrator, you hear from a passerby, you hear from the strong man, the Geber. Mm-hmm. And then by the end of it, it's it's almost like they all start coming in contact with each other. Sure. And by the end, there's actually just one cohesive voice. Mm-hmm. And it's like this dance where they start out separate and slowly they come into contact and, and by the end of it they're sort of raveling around one yeah. another. And yeah. the, but it's the way they're doing it. Uh, see, hear, no, come down. It's like there's four steps to changing the world. Yeah, here's how to change the world in four simple steps. Right? This should be a self help book. <laughs> uh, see, hear, no, come down. That's right. all you gotta do. You're good. That aside, though, when you see that happen, you're you're actually seeing God in the world. And though we want in Lamentations for this big, bombastic, you know, I think last week we said uh, the voice of Morgan Freeman (laughs) giving a Joel Osteen sermon. Though we want that, we just have to look a little bit more closely and we see that God shows up in a much more real way, the same way that God showed up in Exodus, through midwives, Mm -hmm. through Moses, through Jethro. Mm -hmm. Uh, And you could even say through the cloud and the fire, 
that is that sort of incarnated presence as they make their way through the wilderness in Mount Sinai. Um, and we get so caught up in the protest of lamentations, which is just like a healthy thing that Israel's given permission to do. The protest is necessary because it proactively accomplishes the healing presence. But then we go, well, that must indict God's absolute absence. God, God is now on trial because of how God's responded. And good thing they found healing because God didn't do a thing. And I would, this is where we had to go through this theodicy work. Right. Because what, what I think we are actually seeing is God proactively responding in a way that will lead to healing, which is the guiding parent. Okay. Okay. So when we ended our theodicy conversation, we gave that parable of the guiding parent. That's mm-hmm. how God is involved in suffering. That still allows God to be all powerful. And then within free will, God's still good because God is doing something about the suffering. But then we also said, God can't just come in and clean it up, just like a parent isn't going to just make sure their kid's wrapped in bubble wrap all the time and never has any problems. No, you walk with them through it. And so when we get to uh, Lamentations and God isn't speaking, we all of a sudden go, well, isn't God just mean? (sighs) The least that God could do is, you know, say something, but what would you do as a parent? If your child was suffering and, and needed to yell at you about it, mm-hmm. I've, my kids are young, but I've been in this situation where it's like, the best thing I can do right now is just let them. Mm-hmm. Go ahead. And there's a certain trust in that too, that yes. a child who knows their parent loves them can yell, I hate you, and know that that's not true. And everybody knows that yes. this is what we're doing because we're working through something. We're not accepting what, we deal, what we're dealing with right here, but we have enough faith in the love of that parent to say, yep. I'm going to yell at you right now. If you were afraid, if you thought that parent didn't, you would be afraid to do that. Right. And you see this in Lamentations uh, and where are, they're yelling at God. Are we okay with the um, emotive existential mm-hmm. proclamation? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's part it's of the process. Gotta, gotta I mean, we're, mm-hmm. we're seeing that in our culture right now. Yeah, mm-hmm. of course. Yeah, the the the, the screams are going to go out, and they can, mm-hmm. because we've 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 created a, a space where that can happen. Yeah. If my kid can't yell at me, I'm now it doesn't mean that I'm gonna not gonna sit down and be like, all right, so really, you said you didn't love me. Come on. Right. Yeah. We're eventually gonna have that conversation, but in the midst of the in moment, moment, it's like mm-hmm. the best thing I can do is like. I absolutely understand why you would say that. Mm. I get it. Yeah. I'm with you. And in that moment, are we actually showing a divine presence more? Mm. See, and this is what uh, O'Connor says, is that if the, if the divine speaks, it, it ruins it all. Yeah. There's, no, not, there's not even space for one word of God from this. Why? Because it wouldn't allow that healing process to happen. But we also then would miss how God is actually present because the seeing and the hearing and the knowing and the coming down mm-hmm. is happening. Empathy and compassion, all, all, all that stuff within voice and seeing, it's not just psychological healing. It's actually good theology too. Because the, the thing we have to then do with the guiding parent uh, theodicy is to realize that the method of that, God seems to have set into the fabric of creation that that happens through one another. Right. When you see the light that had been hidden amongst all things, and that gets revealed in a moment where somebody sees and hears and knows and comes down, mm-hmm. you're actually seeing the presence of God incarnated within a person. So we want to start by going, God's not faithful to the promise here. Because remember, the divine name, right? Right. As I have been... I am and always will be. Well, you get to Lamentations and apparently not doing it anymore, right? Mm -hmm. And to know whether or not God is going to be faithful to the promise, we have to look and say, did God see and hear and know and enter in? Is God there throwing up God's fist with with daughter Zion the Mm -hmm. whole time? Mm -hmm. And if you compare the Imago Dei, the image of God, and the character of God of seeing, hearing, knowing, and coming down, to pair those two things together, there it is. The narrator in Lamentations, that's God showing up. That's, 
that's how it works. Um, and I would say that incarnational presence disguised through human characters, that's mm-hmm. not just important for suffering. That's important for everything. Yeah. I mean, Jesus does this in Matthew 25 at the parable of the goats and the sheep. Mm-hmm. Everybody wants to get all bent up on like, what's that parable about? And it seems to be about some sort of eschatological afterlife. No, what is Jesus saying? That what you do for the least of these, you're doing for me. Yeah. You you will find God in one another by how you respond. And and I think generally I'm pretty good with uh, divine imminence can be found anywhere. Yeah. But there is a specific bend by how you respond. Do you see those four characteristics being put on display? Whenever you do, you can know that's God in your midst. I'll, I'll, I'll read this, this, um, this paragraph here. God is requesting an awareness that suffering can be healed, evil can be conquered, oppression can be exercised, and liberation is possible if one is willing to pay attention and see that in God's deterministic absence, God is right there, disguised in the form of fellow beings suffering with them. By seeing one another, healing is possible, but it is also possible to see the very face of God continuing the creative act in our midst. That's what I think is happening in Lamentations. Yeah. That's how we find God in Lamentations. Because if, if God does not ordain evil, yeah. okay, God must be involved in the suffering somehow and in the healing. What I think we see in Genesis, in Exodus, and in Lamentations is that we find God doing that through us. And we, yes, we want the big, bombastic, esoteric God shows up and fixes it. Mm -hmm. But that's not how it's going. That won't actually heal it. Yeah. So we can't can't go, well, God didn't show up because God didn't do the thing we wanted God to do, even though it wouldn't have solved the problem. God's going to show up in the way that's actually going to solve it. And what is that? Mm -hmm. Through us having voice and seeing. And when we do, we do find God right there in the pages of the Lamentations, throwing up God's fist, saying, I'm right here with you. That's the guiding parent. Mm -hmm. That's how how this works. And that's for suffering. But I also look at this and go, that's how we're going to make a good world possible. You know, we want to talk about God being present with us and... What a gift. We also have to see that that's a responsibility. If the narrator or the Geber or, 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 or uh, even Daughter Zion refuses this responsibility of God's image showing up through them, that world's never going to find anything good. It's almost like God has said, I'm trusting you all to help make this happen. And what does that sound like? A good parent. Right. It should all be coming together at this point. I hope <laughs> it, it is. Um, and, but I do think I do think there's one component of this that is maybe more difficult, um, and it's the same thing that you brought up with Jethro. It's the same thing brought up with Melchizedek. Um, but I love thinking this in the context of the narrator. Like, imagine being Daughter Zion. Yeah. And remember, Daughter Zion is the emblem of all Israel at that point. In that suffering, you know, we want the full manifestation of the reality to show up right next to us. Mm -hmm. And all she gets is the narrator. Yeah. And you have this moment where it's like, yep, God is present in the Imago Dei in in human beings. Mm -hmm. And... Look, I, all I have to do is look and see this 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 person right next to me who who saw my suffering and heard the cry and 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 and, and knew my suffering and came down. And but sometimes we want the bigger version, and we have to be okay with 
the narrator comes and drops the microphone and joins Daughter Zion, and her voice is, is heard and honored, and uh, she is seen. And sometimes that's all the divine you get. Yeah. You know? Sometimes in the moments where things are the hardest and you get this just faint glimpse of that holy light bursting out through the seams of somebody's life. Mm-hmm. Sometimes that's all the divine you get. And we want to, we might want to complain about that, but we have to realize that maybe that small glimpse of the divine is the only way that healing is going to be possible. So I think that's the the hardest part of this, but I hope that we're able to see like, you know, we, I, I put the challenge to us. Can we find God in lamentations? And, you know, when I process all of this stuff, I'm left with, how can you not? And how beautiful it is. It, it's the best. And, and, and to me, the idea that we, as modern humans, can sit here and listen to this story that was told. And, and as far as I'm concerned, that's also in the presence of God, to be able to hear that story, empathize with people who are so different from us, and yet feel that suffering, and then bring it into our own world and see how we can use it as a way of healing, not just ourselves, but mm-hmm. even in the world that we see. Yeah. Because things don't necessarily change. But the ability to do that is part of what makes us the image of God. Yeah, think about how uh, enlightening this would be if you lived in a, in, a, in a cultural climate where if you wanted some deity to act on your behalf, mm-hmm. <clears throat> you had to do a lot of things right, and you, you had to make a trip to the temple and yeah. hope the priest was in a good mood that day. <laughs> and mm-hmm. it kind of this magic of... It does. It leaves it up to magic mm-hmm. of hopefully this will happen now. Yeah. We'll see. I did the thing. Uh, how enlightening is it for her to go like, oh, no, no, no. You don't have to do all this stuff no. for this God to show up. You just have to be it. In fact, usually when a country was conquered, when a city was conquered, they would carry those images of the God away. And it's like, well, we just lost our God. Our God is gone. Yeah. But God is not gone here. And to me, that's what's interesting about this yes. story is that in a way they were saying, look, when the when they wrote this story down, they were saying, our God was not carried away because we are that image of God and it was still present. God is still yeah. present there in, in Jerusalem. He, you well, cannot carry our God I mean, away I, because we are, and we survive. You're working with the you know, the, uh, everybody felt like the deities were imminent somehow. The deities were present somehow. Right. Well, and they were through these objects. Mm-hmm. And that was the traditional way that you would take the life away from yep. a, a, a tribe. Yeah. You take their gods. Mm-hmm. Well, what if you're... Yeah, you can't take If that the God divine away. image is in you, mm-hmm. well, what am I going to do? Well, we can kill all of you, which, which Assyria tried. Yeah. Well, but God's in the land. Yep. God shows up through the, the, the light is hidden in all events and all things and all people. Absolutely. How are you going to get rid of this? Yeah. You can't. You can't. Uh, yeah. I, I often consider the conversation that may have happened with some of the early Christians who, to Roman Greek people, were Absolutely. atheists. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Because they didn't believe in all of the gods. Mm-hmm. And they didn't have these these images, right? Yeah. And uh, I imagine like the conversation going... You know, somebody, oh, you're a Christian. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So where's your, where's your God? Like, I've got, I've got this statue right here. Mm-hmm. That's, that's my God. How, mm-hmm. Where's, where's your God? Mm-hmm. And I could imagine the first Christian being like, uh, me? No, no, yeah, no, yeah, that's yeah, fine. But I want to, if I want to see what your God is like, yeah. like you have this big like resurrection thing and I want to see what that's like. I want to know mm-hmm. how, how can I find your God and just me, I, that's all we got. Yep. We don't have a big temple. We don't have these big bombastic things. Yep. We got me. We're the body of our God. Mm-hmm. And to think about that as like, what a gift. Yeah. And the daunting, what a responsibility. Absolutely. Like you, and this is why communion is such a big deal. Mm-hmm. When Paul when Paul talks about discerning the body, like do not take this meal if he's going, if you're not going to be this body. Yeah. And 
what if churches actually took that seriously? I mean, we try to here. I, when we take it, I go, mm-hmm. you realize, yes, you're receiving a gift. You're also receiving a responsibility. You have to go be this body and, and you have help. Don't think you're going to fail. So don't take it. You, the point is for you to show up. Yeah. Are you willing to trust this? Are you willing to show up? Then you will be this body. But if you have no intention of being this body, don't take it. It could, cause you're, you're entering into a very transcendent, holy thing. Mm-hmm. Don't mess with that. I, 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 and, and we, I talked about this with the kids this morning of like, this means something for you. This also means something for literally everybody you come in contact with. Yeah. This means that they have within them that same light. That should change how we interact with folks. Mm-hmm. Um, and not just as like a ministerial charitable way. One of the, everybody loves mother Teresa at most people. I guess there's probably some who don't love mother Teresa. Most people love mother Teresa. However, her driving force behind what she did was that she believed that when she was interacting with somebody, she was actually interacting with God. And that sounds like a nice quaint, it's almost cliche, mm-hmm. right? Like I see the face of God in, in people. It's almost cliche today, but like take that to its furthest extent. Yeah, that, that should, that makes a lot of things impossible. That's true. If you, if you actually believe that, you can't insult somebody. Mm-hmm. You can't kill somebody. You can't demean somebody. You can't steal from somebody. You can't have war. You can't have race. Like, mm-hmm. no, 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 no. If, if that's true, much of the world should not be behaving like it does. No. And by doing that, that's how we bring the kingdom of God. Yeah. It, and, mm-hmm. and it's how we bring the very presence of God and it's mm-hmm. how we get through suffering. Yep. Yeah, if you got to take on that responsibility. And yet here you have a book where... God showed up in one of the most disguised ways possible. And because of that, voice and seeing were possible. Healing was possible. That's our invitation today. Um, Let's take a couple questions and comments. I see there's a couple things in the chat. uh, And these look like they came from a little bit ago. I apologize that I missed them. Um, but let's go back to, is there any questions on transcendence, imminence, lamentations, exodus, Imago Dei, all this stuff that we kind of named, uh, go ahead and write it there. And um, also, you can write it privately. So if you're like, I feel like this is a really bad question, and I don't want anybody to think less of me, you can send it to me privately, and I won't, I won't mention your name. That's fine. Um, so Trisha contract store I'm not sure I'm not sure what you meant by that comment the uh, story contract story contract story nope guess not what oh were you guessing what the you're guessing what the uh the thing was okay oh in genesis Got it. yeah uh, um I think there's a way that we could fit that in. That would actually be interesting. Um, that's Genesis. Oh, uh-oh. 12? No. no. 15? 15, 18? 14, 15, or 16. I don't know. Ask Amanda Tuttle because she's working through <laughs> Genesis right now. Um, I forget which chapter that's in. Uh, then Chantel said, is this the justification for intercession? I'm, are you talking about intercessory prayer, Chantel? Okay, so is what, because you probably typed this while we were hitting on something else, is what the justification for intercession? Can you, can you clarify that for me? Okay, so the, 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 there is a problem with prayer and how it's often used to change the mind of God. And does this idea of seeing and knowing and hearing and coming down, is this more about us paying attention? Does that inform prayer? So... Uh, since we've already covered one midrash today, I'm going to throw another one at you. And this is a midrash of the burning bush. And there's a rabbinic sort of parable on it 
where they ask, how did Moses see the burning bush? And did that just happen to be great timing? Or did God wait till Moses was right there and then bushes of flame? And this rabbi says, no. In fact, there were hundreds and hundreds of bushes on fire. And Moses kept passing them on his right and on his left until he decided to pay attention. That's one way to approach that, right? There's also uh, Soren Kierkegaard, who is a great existential philosopher, uh, says something like, I'm paraphrasing, um, prayer is not about changing the mind of God. Prayer is about changing the mind of the one who prays. And he said that, I think. Okay. Yeah, I quoted that. Mm-hmm. The, the whole idea of prayer is a tricky one. Because um, I'll also throw this out you. Lamentations is a prayer. That whole book is one giant prayer. Um, but prayer in our culture, at least like modern Western American Christian culture right now, is... It is, it is a sacred cow for a lot of people that cannot be touched and cannot be considered to be different. Um, and what's been unfortunate is that I approach prayer very differently than most people. Um, and so, I mean, there's been a lot of people who show up to the farmhouse and they go, we didn't pray today. And what they mean is we didn't do intercessory prayer today. And I'm, I'm going like, that whole thing was a prayer because that was us trying to align with the divine. So when Paul says, pray without ceasing, and when Paul, or when John Wesley says, live your life so that every breath is a prayer, well, does that mean you just have to sit there rambling and go in the whole time? No, apparently prayer is more than words. Prayer is a disposition. Prayer is about you aligning with God. And then you look at the Lord's Prayer. Those are, the Lord's Prayer is six requests. Six things you're asking for. And the first three is uh, the person praying, asking that they join God. God, may your name be holy. May your kingdom come and may your will be done. That's about me trying to join God. Um, And so when you think of prayer in that way, Prayer is about joining the divine. Prayer is about aligning with, with the identity of God. Well, now it's not, uh, what's, that, what's that song? Uh, oh, Lord, please buy me a Mercedes-Benz. Oh, Mercedes Benz. Benz. Yeah, my friends right. all drive Porsches. I must make a Benz. Yeah, the, <laughs> you know, that's what prayers become is like, oh, if, I, if I ask hard enough, um, then maybe God will give me this thing that I really want. I think, I think Jesus would balk at that. And you'd be like, because we go like, no, asking you shall receive, right? No, when Jesus says that, he's, there, there's a missing pronoun referring back to, it should be read, when you ask for this, you will receive it. Well, what is this? God's name be made holy, your kingdom come, your will be done. When you ask for that, oh yeah, you have it. Because you've already joined it. It's not when you ask for anything, you're going to get that thing. And the reason that is necessary, I go into that whole rant, because it's necessary with lamentations is when you suffer, if you've been taught that prayer is about you going, God, come and fix this. And then it doesn't happen. What, what went wrong? This is poor theodicy, either God's evil or you messed up. You didn't say the words right, right? You, you didn't frame the prayer exactly the way you needed to. And if you just would have used one different word here, maybe that would have done it. And it's like you, get caught in this game that's completely unhealthy. Lamentations is the better prayer that says, God, I'm angry and this is wrong. And yet we're going to come together in a way that embodies your very presence and we will find you here with us. I, I much prefer that. And I don't know how many times I've been in a hospital room or in a moment of tragedy and I'm asked to pray for them. And I know that what they want is for me to fix it. They, they hope that maybe I will be the, the magic witch doctor that can solve the problem because nothing else seems to be working. And the only prayer I can offer 
is, God, I hope we find you here. And then whatever happens, I hope we find you. I hope we have eyes to see the light that's coming through all events and all people, even the ones we least want right now. And that's where people change, right? That's, that's where we start finding a different way to be in the world that completely makes us different, no matter what the suffering does. That, and that's then, you know, what I would say about lamentations is they actually, they find the answer to their prayer. All these things they're yelling for God to do, they find it through themselves because we have a God that shows up amongst us. That's the power of theodicy and lamentations and responding to suffering is, is if we enter into that difficult, complex space, we're actually changed in a way that makes us and the whole world different. And God continues to put things together as a good parent does to the eschatological climax of, of all life. And we get to be a part of that, even in our suffering, if we would just pay attention. And so, yeah, say that prayer, right? I know you'd ask for none of that when you asked about justification <laughs> for intercession, but the, the prayer conversation is an important one to me because I, I think it's something that we assume and we never really think a whole lot about. And mm -hmm. if we just would, we find more beauty kind of hidden under that, that rich soil that we just leave untouched. Yeah. So, you know, I, I actually that I got, I got more than I asked for in a great way. Cause that's what I've really been, struggling with is um does god hear me in my suffering and you gave such visual um examples that i it's not just about does he hear me he sees me and he come he has come down to walk with me and i'm sorry being emotional but that idea of someone walking with me in my suffering there have been people in my life who have walked with me in my suffering. And it is the, probably the most beautiful manifestation of God that I've ever experienced, but I didn't put the two together um, until this morning. Yeah. I'm sorry. It's just emotionally moving. That's so cool. Uh, and I think the biggest compliment anybody can ever receive when they do that for someone is when you look at them and you say, you were the very face of God to me. It's like, absolutely. It, and that's, it's honestly, let's take it for, it's not even just a nice sentiment. It's a theological truth. That's, that's a, that, and if that is true, if that's true about how the world works, we've got a pretty amazing thing on our hands, you know? Mm -hmm. Uh, but, Here's something that I, I didn't emphasize this when we were talking about Exodus, but uh, one way that God is described is the one who hears the cry. God always, always hears the cry. And this has some implications because we want to say like God's on nobody's side. No, actually God is, God takes sides and whoever is crying out, God's on their side. Always. It, we, we, we can figure it out. The, God has a pre preferential option for those who cry. And uh, you know how people want to talk about like God is the father and God's the creator. Okay. We hear those titles for God a lot. Those titles for God show up a handful of times in the text. You know how many times we're told that God is the one who hears the cry? Do you know? Over 160 times. Wow. So if we were to go, we're going to stick to titles for God that the Bible uses most frequently. We should all be walking around going like, oh yeah, the one who hears the cry. The one who hears the cry. Because mm -hmm. that's how God's referred to all the time. And so when we're, but when we're thinking of this, and when, when you're in suffering and you see that, 
you are able to have some sort of uh, reassurance of, no, God always hears the cry, even if it doesn't seem like it right now. God always hears the cry. We got to be okay with that. Uh, and and the, the question is like, okay, can you, can you trust that, you know? Um, all right, so Trisha, you uh, wrote a book here. <laughs> um, okay, I'm trying to I'm trying to consolidate here. It mostly looks like uh, you you just gave a very nice, uh, concise explanation of 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 that. There's not a question there, right? I just encourage you all to read that. That that's a great way to kind of portray the nuances and all the angles that this can take if 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 you take it on. Um, so I'll I'll read parts of it here. It seems to me that God shows up when and how we need God. Sometimes we miss it. Sometimes it's like in Lamentations, right there, throwing up fists, banging on the table. Sometimes it's another person showing up as a teacher or sitting outside your door as you cry in agony. Sometimes if you, as you lift up others in your prayers. Sometimes, as you mentioned, as a parent who takes on your anger meant for God and loves you anyway. Sometimes in nature, as you need a place to connect with creation and feel and see the beauty, mostly in others, and their joy and suffering. Yep. Cool. Mm -hmm. Chantel, I got some love on there from uh, Tracy and Tricia as well. Thank you all for sharing that. Um, are there any other questions that you all want to get into? Um, I think we we covered a, a good bit of, of ground here. And again, if you are one of the few who has waited endlessly through this to get here. I hope it was worth it. Uh, it's, it's almost like driving through Colorado where you get into Colorado. I don't know if any of you have driven through Colorado. You get into Colorado and you're like, wait, I thought Colorado was supposed to be awesome. This looks like desert and plains. And you just drive through that for a while, and, and the person drives and is like, no, no, just wait. It's going to be worth it. I know this, this isn't very fun right now. And then you get, and you see the Rocky Mountains on the horizon, <laughs> and you're like, oh, that's what, yes, this was worth it. I hope that this has been like driving through Colorado for you. Uh, because seriously, I think, uh, I think you get here, and it all comes together. When you, when you make these connections now we're starting to come in touch with something that, yeah, it deals with suffering, but this is, this is one of the most important things I think we can wrestle with uh, within the mystery of being a human being. Um, yeah, I, I, I just think that this is profound. Um, and Tracy, yes, thank you. That, uh, the, 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 the appreciation is accepted. Um, but that's been my hope because I've been hearing people going like, uh, I'm kind of checked out of this theodicy lamentations thing. And I'm like, no, wait, no. don't get out of the car. The Rocky <laughs> Mountains are up ahead. Um, if this doesn't make you want to study the text, I don't know what yeah. does. To be able to dig into something like this and then understand it. Because the first reading is like, no way. You want to just throw this away. You want to put that book down and say, heck no. But yeah. then when you dig in and you see all these different layers added on here, and it's this layer after layer after amazing layer. Yeah, it's really cool. It's and and it's powerful and it's compelling. Yeah, very and, compelling. Um, and and I want to go back to uh, that. I do feel like I have a little bit of perspective here. Not that I have suffered greatly. Um, I haven't. I have a little bit, but not a ton. I've been in more situations of tragedy than I I would dare ask anybody to do. Um, and I remember reflecting on like, I'm 30 and I have way more tragic funerals under my belt than I feel like is okay. And the experience you all are having where you're going like, Oh yeah, yes. Okay. This, this connects for me. I'm glad it does. And I'm glad, I'm glad that information is powerful. And if you're having an emotional response, awesome, awesome that will help you encode this into long-term memory. My push is don't forget this when it matters because the, the most powerful thing is when you're sitting across the table from somebody 
and they need they need that hope and you can yeah you can explain it to them but when you show them this it changes everything and if when we began this i said my hope is that the farmhouse will be full of people who know how to suffer well this is how you suffer well and if if we have people because we've said suffering is inevitable it's gonna happen it's gonna happen and if we can keep from having terrible theodicy that we push on people and if we can understand the very basic components of practice and scene and if we can understand the absolutely beautiful implications of how we're present we will be able to face any issue of suffering that comes our way and when it does we will know exactly what to do and we will all be better because of it that's why that's why we did lamentations that's why we did theodicy so even in i hope you got this information awesome i hope that it inspires you even to want to find this stuff's all over the text mm-hmm. but i hope mostly we're able to go okay the next time i'm in that i will know that my presence matters and i will know how to honor somebody's voice and i'll, I'll know how to to show them that i actually see them um and that we'll be able to take crisis and tragedy and trauma and wounds and move them into healing. But we gotta, we got to be able to understand what's going on in Lamentations in order to do that. Um, so yes, as Trisha said, it was a long and sometimes boring and complicated drive. I took a lot of side roads. You're like, just take 80. And I was like, no, let's get off here and see the original home of Wizard of Oz in Kansas. And uh, you're like, why are we doing this? And it's like, no, it'll make it better, I promise. <laughs> um, so I do hope that you have all, that you've all enjoyed it. Well, that's it for Zoom. And uh, I'm really glad this is over, but I can't wait to see you all in the barn here with me. It's going to be good. Thank you for those of you who have endured consistently through technological uh, complexity and uh, the lack of face-to-face that makes what we do at the farmhouse so powerful. Thank you for enduring through that, and thank you for being a part of this. I hope that over the course of the past few months, you've learned um, and you've engaged and you've seen things and that you're different now. Um, But I can't wait to start the next season of uh, us continuing to be the kind of people we need to be. So grace and peace be with all of you. I can't wait to see you soon.